Lord God, we thank you this morning. We're here to exalt Jesus Christ. Lord God, we may have walked in with many things on our mind this morning. But God, I pray in this moment that we would openly acknowledge together as your people that you have, uh, that you have placed your spirit within us. That we have uh, received and are empowered by the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead this morning. And so we can come this morning to your word expectantly, knowing that you, uh, through it, transform lives. Lord God, so matter, no matter what we walked in on our, shoulder with the, on, with on our shoulders this morning, whatever burden we might be carrying here this morning, God, would we now openly again recognize that the Spirit of Christ dwells within us and that uh, through Him and through illuminating Your Word to us that we would uh, walk away from this place a transformed people. Not the same as we walked in, but as we prepare to go into uh, a new week this week as we look forward to uh, the time that is in front of us this week. God, that we would see until we gather again in 167 hours, and that we would see again that you have carved a path for us, that you have made a way through Jesus Christ, and that no matter what comes to us in this upcoming week, Lord God, there is nothing that can snatch us out of the Father's hands because of the wonderful and precious work of Jesus Christ on the cross. God, so now as we turn to your word, may we be expectant. God, would we expect that you would transform lives, our lives, and the lives of the men and women in this room. God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. And would you take uh, your Bible with me and turn to John chapter 4 this morning. John chapter 4. A couple weeks ago, we broke off the first six verses out of John chapter 4, and today we're going to take a bigger chunk of text. We're going to read uh, John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7, and we're going to go all the way through verse 26 this morning. John chapter 4, uh, verse 7 through uh, verse 26. Um, whenever I prepare a sermon series, and you know that we've been in John for quite some time, but whenever I prepare a sermon series, there are always those texts that I really, really look forward to preaching, and this is one of them. This text is so important to our understanding of John's gospel and to the person of Jesus Christ, and so I hope this morning that as we spend time considering what's written here, again, and I expect fully that, that, uh, that the Holy Spirit would use this to transform us and prepare us for the week of ahead. If you don't have a copy of God's Word, there is a. Uh, there are still several in the back there. The black hardcover Bibles are right outside the door. And if you have one of those in front of you this morning, you'll find the sermon text on page 1056. John chapter 4, beginning in verse 7. And again, I'll read through verse 26. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to her, or said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, 
If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that, so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you have now, that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming where, when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. You, you've heard it said, you've heard it said, I'm sure you have, that God helps those who help themselves. If you've been around the church for a while, uh, uh, and you or at least a church that cares about the Bible. And, uh, and you probably have heard that, and you think to yourself, that, that doesn't sound right. That does not, that's not, there's something in there that's not quite right. Many of you last weekend were at family camp at, at Crystal Springs Baptist Camp. And uh, if you were there four or five years ago, if you're one of the families that, that takes time each year to attend that, uh, that camp, um, you'll remember my friend Steve Creer was the camp pastor, and he talked about this very thing. He talked about things that oftentimes get said uh, that sound like they have Christian roots, but actually in reality are not. Um, they don't line up with God's word. And one of those the very things that Steve talked about in that time was uh, that God, the phrase that God helps those who help themselves. Now, we don't have to go very far in our Bibles uh, to see that that's simply, that there's something wrong with that phrase. For if we go to the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul writes there in verse 6 of chapter 5, he says, For while we were still weak, at the right time God, or Christ died for the ungodly. And, and then just a verse later, in, in verse 8, in the same chapter, uh, Paul writes, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Uh, weak and sinful people are the types of people that God comes to and extends salvation to. The, the creator God is not here to make up the difference 
where you fall short. It's not, it's not your efforts plus my efforts or our efforts plus God's efforts that leads us to becoming more like Jesus or that leads us into salvation. Listen to the familiar words in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. You know these words. We talk about them a lot. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And here it is. And this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. He says, not of your doing, so that no one may boast. So when we come to this text this morning, we look at John chapter 4 and we meet the woman at the well and we see Jesus' interaction with this woman. Immediately what happens is it exposes a couple of things here. Now, I want you to listen to these things because I think that we fall on one side or the other when we approach this passage. The first thing is... We, as people, oftentimes struggle. We, we struggle to believe that that free gift of salvation that God offers to us through Jesus Christ is for us. So you might be here this morning and you may be thinking to yourself, I struggle with the idea that the free gift of salvation is for me. And we appeal to things in ourselves where we say, Uh, because of who I was in the past or uh, because of things that I've done or the person that I am. And we struggle to believe that that God, uh, through Jesus Christ, has extended salvation to every man, woman, boy, and girl on the face of the earth um, and that when you are in Christ, the salvation that he gives freely is unwaveringly applied to you. So maybe that's you. Maybe you struggle with that idea because you see stuff in your past and you say, look at all the junk. Look at who I am. Look at how I continue to fall into sin. Could, could God really love me? But then on the other side of it, the second thing that potentially could be exposed in us is that you may be living like God is on your side because of all the hard work you've put in or because the challenges that you've powered through in your life. There are a lot of things that, a lot of barriers, a lot of obstacles to overcome and and you've really buckled down and you've put in the work to get past those things. And so because of that, you begin to think, well, that God is on my side. The Lord is on my side because I've done the work. I've avoided those blatant sins. That's ensnared so many, and I've walked in the, in the upright path. You might say something like, well, God helps the helpless, but your living actually can, or demonstrates that you believe that God helps those who help themselves. So I think this passage, again, I'm giving that to you right out of the gate because I think that we are exposed in one way or the other. Which way do you drift? Do you drift to believing that God cannot love you and the free gift of salvation found in Jesus Christ is not for you? Or do you drift into the lane saying, I've done a lot of hard work and it's me plus God that earns me salvation? 
When we learn about the Samaritan woman at the well that Jesus meets in John 4, we learn about a miserable sinner. And this miserable sinner had everything going against her. I think that's the point of this. This is why John highlights this for us. Is she has everything going against her. If, it is a, if God is a God who helps those who help themselves, then this Samaritan woman has no hope at all. None whatsoever. The ship is sailed. It's over for her. So we're going to explore that idea this morning and how Jesus continues to mercifully offer himself to her. Before we do that, though, um, I want you to think back to, it's been a while, but I want you to think back to John chapter 3 and think about Nicodemus. We remember Nicodemus right there embedded in John 3. We have John 3.16 where Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus and he says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. You know that verse well. Um, But Jesus also unpacks for Nicodemus. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in in the night and starts asking, questioning Jesus as a teacher. But what we're supposed to do with John chapter 4, and when we meet the woman at the well, is to see her in direct contrast with Nicodemus. These two characters Jesus interacts with, he interacts with them very differently, and they're very, very different people. Nicodemus is a man. Here, in John 4, we meet a woman. Nicodemus was a Jew. Here, we meet a Samaritan. We'll unpack what those two things mean in just a moment. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, so he's very learned in the law, and he's upright. He keeps the law. This Samaritan woman is a serial adulterer and lawbreaker. Nicodemus lived according to that law. She's continually violating it. Nicodemus is, would have been highly regarded in society. Here's a societal outcast that we meet in John chapter 4. Nicodemus seeks out Jesus. He comes to Jesus. He's looking for answers. This woman did not intend at all to have an encounter with Jesus at the well. Nicodemus' encounter is in the night. The Samaritan woman's is during the day. And so we see all of these things laid out before us and we're meant to say, okay, so Nicodemus and this woman, what do we learn here by drawing a contrast between these two people? All of the things that we see that Nicodemus is described as having, and even in the interaction that Jesus has with Nicodemus, um, is to say Nicodemus is, according to the world, doing pretty well. He's doing pretty well for himself. Like I said, he kept the law, he's a Pharisee, he's an educated man, um, he's a man, and he uh, is a Jew. And all of those things add up to, you're doing pretty well. The Samaritan woman is in a hopeless spot. She is in a hopeless spot. But what we find here in John chapter 4 is that Jesus extends an offer to this woman. He offers her living water. And this offer, no matter what she throws at him, no matter how miserable she is in her sin, is not rescinded. It's not taken back. Jesus does not 
take back the offer. The offer, again, is the soul-satisfying living water that will well up into eternal life. This is what Jesus says right there in verses 13 and 14. Everyone who drinks of this water will not be thirsty again, Jesus says. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that will be given to him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. To boil that down further, Jesus in this passage is offering this woman, this miserable sinner, he's offering her himself. So that's what I want to do this morning is I want to explore three ways in which Jesus offers, well, specifically uh, how Jesus offers her, uh, this miserable sinner, something despite what they are and what they've done. That's us. That's where we're going to put ourselves in that position this morning. So, Jesus offers himself to miserable sinners despite three things. First, our background. Second, our law-breaking. And third, our incredulity. Jesus offers himself to miserable sinners. So let's explore that first one together. Jesus offers himself to us despite our background. And again, we can immediately identify two cultural disadvantages that this woman has. Two cultural disadvantages that this woman has in her background. I mentioned these when we talked about the contrast with Nicodemus. But these two disadvantages that she has is one, she's a woman, and two, She's a Samaritan. And she actually identifies these two things in how she responds when Jesus addresses her, right? In verse 9, she says, uh, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? The first disadvantage here is, is more subtle, and it's not really explained all that much because the readers of John's Gospel would have understood this in the ancient world, the, the, the gap between men and women. This first uh, look, or at least appear subtle to us in the text, and we might miss it. But, but the disadvantage that she's a woman. Now, when I say disadvantage, I'm not talking about like modern feminism and a pay gap or those sorts of things. I'm talking about like in the ancient world, the way that, the way that men were viewed and that women were viewed was very, 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 very different. But women were thought to be second-class citizens. They could not earn income or own property. Um, women uh, could not testify in court because their witness was thought to be incredible. Incredible. Men would not speak to women in public, which is one of the reasons why this is so shocking, except on the rarest of occasions. So this interaction would have immediately been strange because... It's immediately been strange because she was a woman. But the second disadvantage and the one that gets highlighted a bit more here is that she is a Samaritan. And it's actually explained right there at the end of verse 9. John says, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Samaritans had Jewish, some Jewish origins, but they also were intermingled people group with um, with, uh, with pagans. 
And so this people group openly worshipped uh, idols. They housed when someone in Jewish culture would break the law. Samaritans would bring them in and house them. They built their own temple on Mount Gerizim, claiming that Moses told their forefathers to do so. And for this reason, Jews would not interact with Samaritans. And I mean, I don't know if that paints the picture, but many Jews would think to themselves that Samaritans existed, God created them, their sole purpose was to fuel the fires of hell. That's what Jews thought about Samaritans. They so defiled their culture, they so made a mockery of who they were, that they thought they were only created for destruction. (laughs) These two things didn't stop Jesus from talking to this woman. He speaks directly to her. Being a woman and being from Samaria were two things that fell outside of her control, but they were realities for her nonetheless. And where society viewed the Samaritan woman as not worth much, if anything, Jesus isn't stopped from speaking to her and offering himself to her. She is disadvantaged. But friends, this points us to the truth and the reality that we are all disadvantaged. We all enter the world disadvantaged. The Bible tells us that we are born into a state of sinfulness. That in Adam, the first man that God created, when he sinned, then we are all born into him. And so we become spiritual outcasts. We become like the Samaritan woman. And honestly, worse than those things that I described. We're spiritually dead. But, but what Jesus does, Jesus gives himself, he offers himself to miserable sinners. And just like you and I are first born in Adam, the new life that, that Jesus talked about when he, was, when he was interacting with Nicodemus, the new life that Jesus brings is birth that results in us being in him, in Christ, no longer in Adam. Despite our serious spiritual disadvantage, and I can think of no uh, more intense disadvantage than being dead, Jesus stands ready to offer and extend salvation. By offering the Samaritan woman living water, he was telling her that what she thought to be a disadvantage was of no disadvantage to her. The free gift is extended. And it's not about, not about our background. Man or woman, Jew or Samaritan, it's just simply whether or not you are in Christ. And so we just like turn that question and confront it ourselves. Are there things in your life that you believe to be a disadvantage but are of no disadvantage. This puts us in that camp where we think to ourselves, is the, is the free gift of salvation actually extended to me? Does God really know what I've done in my past? Does God really understand the way that, the way that I've acted and the way that I've lived and the way that I've engaged with other people? Does God really know those things? Because if he did, would he really still 
do that. And in this moment, Jesus shows us that what we are inclined to believe is a disadvantage for us is actually of no disadvantage at all. Jesus is not stopped by these things. Rather, he offers himself freely. The second thing here we see in this text is that Jesus offers himself to us despite our law-breaking. <laughs> we, we quickly find in this text, if you look at verse 16, we quickly find in this text that this woman is a serial adulterer. She had previously had five husbands, we find out. Right? Jesus says, go call your husband to come here. And the woman's like, I have no husband. And it's kind of like a half-truth, right? Like he, she tells her a little bit. And everybody, but he knows. He's like, that's right. You've had five. And you're actually uh, living with one who is not your husband right now at all. Um, uh, some people have tried to sort of dismiss this. Or say, well, she, maybe she had been widowed five times. But I think the way that Jesus addresses her tells us that um, she uh, had, uh, was a serial adulterer. And divorce on the grounds of sexual immorality is allowed for by Jesus himself in the Gospel of Matthew. And so by the way Jesus speaks here, we can safely understand this text to mean that she has the habit of sleeping around and that five previous men have divorced her on the grounds of adultery. He doesn't, he doesn't say this because it's their sin. He says it's because it's her sin. Samaritans didn't take marriage seriously at all. We live in a culture where no-fault divorce exists, um, uh, but they didn't take marriage seriously at all. But what's amazing about this is that this woman had been so repetitive in her law-breaking she had done it five times, and that's so many times that even a culture that didn't really care much about, about marriage, even a culture that didn't care about marriage began to treat her like an outcast. And the way we know that is because right there in verse 6, I didn't read that earlier, we looked at that last week, but right there at the end of verse 6, we learned it was the sixth hour, this is noon. The sixth hour is noon. Most of the time, most of the time, women would go to draw the water early in the morning when it was cool out, um, and it would be a social time. The women would go together um, and go to the well, draw the water, and then they'd head back together. But this woman is alone in the middle of the day. She is a social outcast. And she, she this woman, becomes the poster child for immorality in a culture that cares nothing about morality. That's how serious this is. Jesus, with divine insight, looks into her life and he extracts the whole truth. When Jesus says, I have no husband. <laughs> Under the surface of that statement is a lot more. And this woman, like a runaway train, is currently living in direct violation of the seventh commandment. Lawbreaking is sin. God gives clear directives on how we are meant to live. And when we violate those directives, it's sin. 
1 John 3, 4 says, Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. God's law given to us is perfect, and to ignore it and break it is to rebel against him. That's sin. Here's what I want you to see. Here's what's incredible about this interaction. Here here is what is amazing about the way Jesus addresses, because it looks like on the surface, Jesus is like changing the subject, right? He's like, go call your husband. She's like, I don't know. Because you're bringing that up. Why does he bring this up? So this woman asks, look at verse 13. She asks for the living water. She says, sir, give me this, this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. So she asks for it. He asks, she asks what she, he's just told her about. And, and what, what happens is, is not that he changed the subject, but that he actually right here gives her the living water. It's like, how is, why, how? How does that work? Jesus here mercifully points out that law-breaking, that sin. He mercifully points it out so that she can repent and be joined to him by faith. Friends, you cannot be a Christian. You can't be a Christian. You cannot be saved without acknowledging your state of sinfulness and sin and repent. The Bible is very clear. Jesus offers her a drink of living water. The first drink she gets is to an opportunity to turn away from her sin and repent. By seeing her sin laid out before her, she could take her first drink. That first drink for her and for you and I is repentance. Lord God, I am a sinner. Be merciful for me, for I have violated your law. Jesus' offer of living water doesn't go away because of what she's done. He looks into her past and he sees willful rebellion over and over again, repetitively. Rather than go away, he offers her the first drink. And the, the clear look at her sin is designed to lead to pre- pre- repentance. The Bible, in, in the book of Romans, it is God's kindness that leads us to repentance. Jesus is giving and extending a kindness. Jesus isn't a bully. He's not trying to dredge up the past to manipulate her. He's offering exactly what she asked for. The first sip of living water that will lead to repentance and well up into eternal life. So Jesus isn't stopped by this woman's law-breaking. He continues advancing. He continues advancing the offer. He continues advancing the offer of himself. The final thing here, though, I want you to see is that Jesus offers himself, first, uh, despite our background, second, despite our law-breaking, And third, despite our incredulity. Now that may be a weird word to use, but being incredulous means that you are unwilling or unable to believe. 
So we're just going to use some shorthand. Unwilling or unable to believe. And both of those are true of this woman, right? She's unwilling and she's unable to believe. When Jesus advances the offer of living water by pointing out her sin and leading her to repentance, when Jesus offers the living water there to her, um, she jumps straight into avoidance. <laughs> she, look at what she says. Sir, I perceive you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say, and she goes into this discourse about worship and the place and the location and whatever. Jesus doesn't, doesn't not chase this worth. He doesn't say, that's not what we're talking about here, woman. Rather, he addresses her and gives her the right. So he gives her, he reveals truth to her. What is true about the thing that she starts talking about? So she starts talking about these places of worship. She's like, we Samaritans, again, they, they believe that Moses spoke to someone in the past and told him to build a, a, a place of worship on Mount Gerizim. Um, and, but you Jews, you worship in the temple in Jerusalem. And, and so which is right? What's this all about? The woman's unbelief, her unwillingness and inability to believe shows her avoidance, but she does, this doesn't stop Jesus. He continues to offer her drink after drink of living water. He reveals to her what true worship is. It's not defined by a place or a mountain or a city or whatever, but true worship will happen, here it is, when the hearts of the people are transformed. Now, Okay, when I say hearts of people, I don't just mean emotions, right? That's what our society wants to talk about when we talk about our heart. Like it's, but it's more. It's, let's not get sloppy here with our theology. When we talk about our hearts, when the Bible talks about our heart, it's talking about central command for your being. It's what's at the core of who you are, right? So it's not just emotions. Like I don't feel good, like, you know, it's not just about emotions. It's about, also about our thinking. It's also about our action, our doing. And so Jesus is telling her that there is a time coming, and even is here now, he says, where true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. And all of a sudden, this place no longer becomes part of the conversation. True worship then becomes what Jesus communicates here is an all of us activity. And Jesus says that true worship the Father is in, again, he says spirit and in truth. The spirit is our whole being. It's our understanding, not just location and form and function. And the truth refers to the way we enter into worship through Jesus and his shed blood. So Jesus reveals to the woman Again, he's very gracious. He's very kind. He's pointed out her sin with the hope that she would repent. And he's very kind. And he, he, he indulges this diversion, this avoidance, right? And he tells her the truth about what worship will look like very soon. By talking about the way, the thing that she wants to talk about and avoiding the understanding of her sin, what Jesus does is he leaves her now out of option. She doesn't know what else to talk to this guy about. First, he showed up and he started talking to her, a woman of Samaria, who he had no business talking to in the first place. And now she's out of conversation topics. 
What's she supposed to say to this man found, she found sitting at the well? He doesn't seem bothered by her background. He doesn't seem uh, like, uh, but rather he offers her living water that will leave her eternally satisfied. He knows about her law breaking, but that does, he doesn't walk away. He reveals truth to her about worship and its true nature. So what does she say now? What does she say now? The conversation has taken a direction that is now off her map. She does not know what to do next. So she grasps at the final straw. This is what she does. She grasps at the final straw. She's been told about the living water. She's been, she couldn't deny her sin. She actively avoids it. She redirects to a conversation about worship, but is met with radically different ideas than she even can comprehend. And, and what comes next is where I'm convinced that this, this woman, this woman who has acted in opposition in every single way, she's avoided, she's broken the law, she's done all of these things, and her heart is a hard heart of stone. And what happens next is where I'm convinced that her heart is transformed from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh as the Holy Spirit breathes life into her and a merciful Savior offers to her salvation and offers to her himself. And she takes hold of it in this moment. We're going to see that and explore that in next week and what that actually looks like. But this woman has been broken down. She's been exposed for who she is. She's been corrected in her misconceptions. And yet this man still stands in front of her. And what she says next is the final straw. And she says this. She says, I know that Messiah is coming. He will call who called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Friends, in every blade of grass, in every ounce of dirt, in every star, in every planet, and everything that exists in all of creation in this moment rejoices because all of the law and the prophets cried out for the one to whom they bore witness from generation to generation. He stood at Jacob's well, not in front of someone who deserved it, but in front of a miserable sinner. And he says to this woman with no uncertainty, I who speak to you now, am he. This is the most specific and explicit expression that Jesus is the Messiah to this point in this gospel. And he says it to this woman at the well. Friends, if you struggle this morning, if you struggle with the idea that salvation, the free gift of salvation is for you, look to this passage. Look to this passage. There is no more miserable sinner that is displayed before us this morning, that can be displayed than this woman. Salvation is from the Lord and it is extended. To every it's not rescinded because of what you've done in your past, but it is extended all the more fully. The one who spoke those words, I who speak to you am he, is the one who calls out to you and me this morning. 
the Messiah, this Christ, the only one who has the ability to save you from your sin, the only one who has the ability to overcome the sinfulness that you were born into and all of the disadvantages that have been accumulated in your life, the only one who has the ability to overcome the the sin, the law-breaking that you have engaged in willfully and rebelliously for years upon years, this is the only one who has the ability to overcome all of this and he freely does so. He extends to you this morning the offer of himself. He stands offering you living water. Eternal satisfaction. He stands offering you himself. Maybe you're here this morning, you've never actually trusted Jesus. Maybe you thought yourself to be a Christian, but you don't know what any of this means. You don't know what this is all about. What you need to do is drink of the living water that he offers you right now. A clear look at your sin and the opportunity to repent and to trust him. Where have you sinned? Where have you rebelled? What disadvantage do you think Jesus can't overcome? What what in your life do you think will cause him to rescind the offer? It's false. The offer, as long as there's breath in your lungs, the offer is extended to you. The Samaritan woman at the well is meant to show you and meant to show me that despite our sin and status and unbelief that have clearly marked our lives for so long, that Jesus offers all of himself to all of you. All of him for all of you. Maybe you've trusted Jesus, but it's been a long time since you've taken a drink. Maybe you've slid into sin, carelessly living for yourself, ignoring the commands of Christ. You feel like you're here this morning and your life is in jeopardy of coming apart at the seams. My prayer for you this morning is the Spirit of Christ would reveal to you your sin like Jesus does with the Samaritan woman and that you would grow in a hunger and thirst for Jesus himself who offers this living water to you. That you would experience God's mercy in the revealing of your sin and that you would have a heart of repentance. And that you would discover afresh God's kindness towards you in that. Jesus doesn't ignore your sin. He doesn't ignore your sin. That's not what this is about. Jesus wasn't ignoring the sin of the Samaritan woman and he doesn't ignore yours either. He doesn't ignore it, but he bears the brunt of it. He who knew no sin became sin on our behalf. All of him for all of us. Maybe you're here this morning and you fall into that second category that I talked about right out of the outset. And you look at the woman at the well and you say, that's not me, I'm not a miserable sinner like that. Look at what I've done. Friends, that's the most dangerous territory that I can imagine. Those who are blind to their sin are blind to the excellencies of Christ and to his infinite worth. Those who are blind to their sin are blind to the excellencies of Christ and his infinite worth. Because you don't see the debt. When you don't see the debt, you can't understand the forgiveness. When when you know nothing of what Jesus paid for on the cross, 
You think of God as making up the difference. You think of God being plus being a good person that makes up your salvation. You think that God helps those who help themselves. Or maybe you think that your upbringing, your reputation in the community, the work that you do, the success that you've had, the blatant sins, again, that you've appeared to avoid are good enough and have a bearing on the way that God thinks about you. This is the epitome of arrogance. And the call there is to repent. The call is, again, to repent. For in your pride, you, your, you consider your contributions to be similar to God's. And the Bible is clear. That puts you in opposition with God. For God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If this is you, may God grant you the ability to see clearly your sin. That you're not just making up the difference, but that God has made up the difference entirely. May you see clearly that it's all of Jesus for all of you. It's all of Jesus for all of us. Friends, what I want you to walk away with this morning is this understanding that this woman, this woman is all of us. This woman, the offer is not rescinded from her by Jesus. No matter what her disadvantages were in her past, no matter what law-breaking she is engaged in, no matter in the way in which she tries to avoid the sin and the problem, Jesus stands before her and does not rescind the offer, but extends it freely over and over and over and over and over again. And he does that again for you this morning. Whether you are outside of Christ and have no idea who he is, he extends himself to you. Whether you have not taken a drink of living water, you are in Christ, but you have, have ignored him for a long time, he extends himself to you this morning and he will continue to do it and continue to do it and continue to do it and continue to do it. This Christ is the one that speaks to you this morning through his word. He stands ready to say you. Undeterred by your background, by your law breaking, by your pattern of unbelief. Jesus offers himself, all of himself, to the most miserable vial of sinners. He offers himself to us. But let me leave you with what J.C. Ryle concludes about this passage. He writes, The infinite willingness of Christ to receive sinners is a golden truth which ought to be treasured up in our hearts and diligently impressed on others. The Lord Jesus is far more ready to hear than we are to pray. And far more ready to give favors than we are to ask them. Christ is as willing to receive as he is mighty to save. What are we ourselves? This is the question, after all, which demands our attention. We may have been this day careless, thoughtless, sinful as the woman whose story we have been reading, but yet there is hope. He who talked with the Samaritan woman at the well is yet living at God's right hand and never changes. Let us only ask that he will give us living water. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we praise you this morning as your people, that the offer of salvation that comes to us in Jesus Christ is not taken back. No matter what we've done, no matter what we've said, no matter what, how we've acted, no matter what we were born into, it is not taken back. Jesus, we thank you that you give us all of you. 
for all of us as individuals, but for all of us as people. God, as we go into our week, God, may this be the thing that drives us forward. May we see, God, Jesus' merciful offer to miserable sinners and rejoice. God, we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.